Father, we pray to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We praise you. Praise is your name. Lord, you called us out of darkness, and you showed us that you are the light of the world, and that all who turn to meet you. Wash us clean from the sin that so easily entangles us, so we are free indeed. Lord, bless this church and all who enter here, seeking to find the truth of the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, and to those who may have missed it. Bless Pastor Adam as you have anointed him, and fill him with your words inspired by your Holy Spirit. And please bless every heart, mind, and soul with your precious and holy word. Amen. All right, kids, you're dismissed. Well, you already know where to go. Good job, guys. My son Jack looked at me this morning whenever he got here and said, Daddy, you look like a professional golfer. I said, until you see me golf. <laughs> Wasn't my intent, but uh, that's my Halloween costume. So, All right, this morning we're going to be in uh, Romans chapter 6 predominantly. There's going to be other passages we look at, but if you want to mark one passage, we're going to spend a decent amount of time, and it's Romans chapter 6. Uh, last week we looked at how the early church was devoted to celebrating the Lord's Supper. We looked at what the Lord's Supper is. We looked at what it is not. And the main takeaway from my perspective is that if Jesus did it and told us to keep doing it, that's good enough for me. Uh, I don't need to have arguments about methods. I don't need to have a defensive posture. I just can look at the scriptures. I can look at what Jesus was doing and how he did things and the moments where he said, I've done this, now you should do it and keep doing it with one another and for one another. And I can say, okay, that's good enough for me. And so uh, that's, that's the posture at which we're looking at this, uh, all of these things. We want to orient ourselves around the things that the church at its arguably healthiest did. They were devoted to certain things. And like I said, this, this church that we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 was arguably the healthiest the church has ever been. So as a means of refreshment, let's look at Acts 2, 42 again. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And this week, we're going to look at something we do as the church today, pretty much across the board in all Christian faith traditions, and answer, hopefully, why we do it. We're going to look at baptism. Now, baptism isn't explicitly listed in this. It's not explicitly listed in Acts 2, 42 through 47. But we know throughout the New Testament that this was a really important practice of the church. As a matter of fact, it was one of the things that Jesus commanded us to do when he ascended and gave us our explicit job description to go and make disciples. Listen to what Jesus says as a refresher. You've probably heard this before. It's a pretty good chance you have. Jesus is on a mountaintop. He has, uh, he has ascended. I mean, he has risen from the grave. He has lived for a few weeks with the followers. He has taught them. He has modeled certain things for them. He is, he is, he is, uh, they have opened their, it has opened the followers eyes to the reality that he is a risen savior. Um, and they're waiting for the what now they're waiting for the what now, what, what do we do now? 
And what they didn't expect was for this Jesus to float from a mountaintop up into the clouds and then two angels come down and give them some more instruction. They didn't expect to get their final instructions from Jesus face to face as he was getting ready to float up into the clouds. It's one of these moments where it's, as a human being, it's hard to conceptualize this moment. We weren't there. Uh, it's not a fairy tale. This happened. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, listen to what it says. And Jesus came and said to them, this is the last thing Jesus says before he ascends back up into the heavens, where he has been from this moment until he comes back. This is what he says. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now I'm going to stop there because I want to make sure that we understand that he's giving a pretty important caveat here. This is the last thing Jesus is going to instruct the followers of Jesus on. Now, he has given lots of instruction. All of Scripture is about him. Now, he's about to say, this is what you do with it. This isn't just head knowledge anymore. This is what actively you should do with what you've learned. This is the what now. But he reminds them. You will never, under any circumstance, under any tradition, under any upbringing, find a more authoritative voice than the one you are hearing right now. That's what he tells the disciples. There will never be anything in your life more important than what I'm about to say. That's what Jesus is saying. There will never be a to-do list that should trump this one, ever. There, there, there's no interest, hobby, or passion in life that should ever supersede this one. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I can picture myself being there. Picture this. First off, just 40 short days ago, you thought he, you struggled. Maybe he's dead. Maybe everything we thought this man was isn't true. Then he shows up. He tells the doubting ones, go ahead, put your finger in the wounds. I'm real. I'm here. I wish we had more um, in-depth knowledge of what those 40 days looked like walking with the disciples and the followers uh, before he ascended. What did he do? What did he say? There had to be some sense of euphoria amongst the followers as they realized that he was exactly who he said he was. And even light bulb aha moments that are coming along the way of, you know, he, the wind and the waves obey him. Then he asks questions like, who is this man? Now they know, right? The light bulb has come on. The aha moments have come left and right. And I would guess venture a pretty educated guess that this moment on a hillside outside of Jerusalem, they are hanging on his every 
word. Whatever he is about to say, the world is going to stop. And I am going to tune in tight to whatever is about to come out of the mouth of my Savior. And that's what happens. There is this one final command, and Jesus reminds them, you will never find an authoritative voice higher than this. You will never find a priority higher than this. You want to know what to do now? You want to know the now what? You want to know the get up in the morning motivation to go throughout your day? You want to know what the main responsibility and job description of a follower of Jesus is? Jesus says, I'm about to give it to you. Every responsibility that you have in this world will fall underneath this one. I am the all-authoritative voice in heaven and on earth. These things that you see and experience, the mountain we're standing on, the clouds you see, the sun that's shining, my voice is what's spoken into existence. You will not find a more authoritative voice than this. So therefore, pay attention out of that authority. I'm not telling you to bow to me. I'm not telling you to, to give, pay me homage and, and give me everything you have from a vengeful or controlling state. No, Jesus is saying you go. Go and make disciples of all the nations. And you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you catch that? When we find people that we make disciples of, the first step that Jesus points us to is to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them all the things Jesus commanded. There is a a systematic approach somewhat to this. So, just like we looked at last week, I just want to make sure that we cover this is not legalism. Legalism is driven by morality. It's driven, about, it's driven by a desire to look the part to the masses. That's what legalism is all about. It's about making sure that when you look at me, you see me as holy. Draw more attention to myself through my morality. And then I can hold you under captive control by telling you that I follow the rules better than you and you should look more like me. That's what legalism does. This is not about legalism. This is about holiness. This is about discipleship. This is about looking at the person of Jesus and asking ourselves, what does this require of me? What does it look like in our day and age right now to live out the person of Jesus? This is us wanting to hear Jesus' words, look at his actions, know his word, and then do what he says. That's what this is about. So when we look at topics like communion or baptism, know that there is a variance of thoughts and, and, I mean, probably hundreds if not thousands of books written on the topic with varied thoughts and, and conclusions and whys and hows. We just want to look at the person of Jesus. We want to look at his actions. We want to know his word. We want to hear his words. And then we just want to do what he says. Do the things that he did. Prioritize the things that he prioritized. So this morning we want to, we want to explain what baptism is. 
We want to explain what it is not, and we want to, we want to explain why we do it here. That's, that's essentially the goal today. So what baptism is? Baptism comes from the Greek word baptizo, which literally means to dip or immerse. So the symbolism of baptism is just that. As Christ died and was buried, a person being baptized is put under water. And just as Christ rose from the grave, the person comes back out of the water. Under the water is the old dead self, and out of the water is the new life cleansed by Jesus. That's that's the what it is. Now here at our church, uh, as a mode of baptism, not that we're, I'm not going to be legalistic about this, but when we baptize, we baptize one act of baptism in three separate parts. You go down under the water once in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. One act of baptism, three separate parts. It's a picture of the Trinity. But also this coming, going down into the water and coming out cleansed. It's a picture. It's a symbol. It's kind of like this ring that I've been wearing for over 16 years now. This ring doesn't make me married. Just because I have a wedding ring doesn't, I mean, I could, I could go buy a ring, put it on my ring finger, and let the world think that I'm married, but not actually have a covenant commitment to another woman. I could just let people think I'm married. So the ring doesn't make me married. What the ring says to the watching world is hopefully it says that I am married. Ladies, I'm off the market, right? Just batting them away with sticks, right? But it also reminds me of a covenant promise that I've made to my wife. It's a reminder. It's a symbol. If we could... Picture baptism, the fall in the same category. I think that would help us greatly to veer away from legalism or veer away from some kind of intrinsically tied to my receiving of the Holy Spirit or my salvation. It is a symbol. And, and like we talked about last week with the grape juice and the wafer or the bread, uh, it's the same is true with the water. It's just water. When you come out of the water, it's still water. <laughs> It doesn't transform into anything else. It is a symbolic thing like a wedding ring is. It's it's a symbol that says it speaks something to the people that see it. One who is redeemed by the blood of Jesus gets baptized as a symbol to a watching world that Jesus has made you new. So that's what baptism is. Baptism is not anything but a symbol. The act of baptism doesn't save you. The act of baptism doesn't give you the Holy Spirit. The act of baptism doesn't put you in an elite club. And I think that's pretty much all I have to say about what it is not. So the last thing we want to look at before we dig into this, the thing we're going to spend the bulk of our time on is, is uh, why do we do it? Why do we do it? Why do we do it here? Well, there's a really simple answer to this. So we could just answer it this way and, and just close in prayer and walk out the door and the children's workers would be like, I didn't even start my lesson yet, right? Uh, so for their sake, I'll keep talking, okay? It's really for the children.
folks. It's really for the children. We do it here because Jesus did it. We do it here because Jesus said to do it. And we do it here because Jesus said to keep doing it. We don't do it because the fellowship, uh, the Caris Fellowship says that we must do it or do it a certain way. We don't, we don't, those are all secondary things. Primary. If we're going to keep the main thing the main thing, we want to ask ourselves, why do we do it here? To our shame, if I could confess to you, to our shame, we do not celebrate communion near as often as we should. And we don't baptize as often as we should. And we use the excuse of logistics in the church for why we don't. I was sharing with Steve this morning. My friend is a pastor at a church over in Coatesville. And when they redid their lobby, uh, someone suggested them doing like a water feature, I guess, in the, in, in the, in the lobby. And so they did. And they, they put a baptistry in their lobby. So when you walk into their lobby, there's this beautiful like stone wall with water coming off of it that flows into a baptistry pool so that any Sunday someone says, hey, I want to be baptized. They just say, "Okay, guys, come on out to the lobby. Uh, So and so is going to get baptized. And they just do it right there in the lobby. So I think like maybe we should just put like a put like a cattle trough or something out there. Right. We don't have a lot of space. But if you're saying you want a water feature in the lobby and you want to turn into baptistry, I'm all about it. Okay. So I want to confess that. That's something that's felt very convicting to me over the past few weeks in study is how we feel like we have to always schedule this stuff. And there's a reality where you do. that, That is a reality. But also, like, I think because of that and because we say things like it's really hard to, you know, it's really hard to find a time where everybody can be together for it. It's really hard to get that on the calendar and people are busy and all that stuff. Like, if we're going to, we want to commit ourselves to the things that Jesus committed himself to. So we want to do this stuff more often, just so you know. We want to get it on the calendar more often. We want to let you know when it's happening more often. We want to spontaneously celebrate stuff more often. Um, but we do it here because Jesus did it and because he commanded to keep doing it. So a couple things to make note of. Um, sorry, I lost track of my own notes here. I want to look at this passage where Jesus did this, okay? This is in Matthew, <clears throat> in Matthew thir- chapter 3. If you remember in our Matthew series when we were in there, we looked at this passage and we talked about this. But in Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, we get this moment where Jesus himself was baptized. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. I love that picture. Like, that's God, like, can't contain his joy, saying to the masses, That's my boy right there. But Jesus says, to, John says to Jesus, who am I to baptize you? It's akin to what Peter says during the washing of feet. 
Peter looks at Jesus and says, who am I to have my feet washed by you? No, I should never let you wash my feet. John the Baptist is saying something similar here, just not as, not as brazen or you know, foot in the mouth as Peter tended to be. But John is saying something similar. He's saying like, who am I to be baptized by you? I, I, or to be baptizing you, I should be the one being baptized by you. And Jesus says, if we're going to teach people how to move towards righteousness, this is a big step in that process. So John, baptize me. I love how the ESV says, then he consented. You know, it's like Jesus saying, it'll be okay, John. This is the right thing to do. And John's like, all right, I'll do it. So Jesus himself does this. Did Jesus have to get baptized? No. I mean, he didn't really have to do anything. He was God in flesh, right? He didn't really have to. But why did Jesus do it? Well, he did it for us. He did it for us. We do it because it's a symbol to a watching world as to who we belong to. When we come out of the water, God says to a watching world, that's my boy. That's my girl. They're mine. I want, I want to look at Romans 6, 1 through 14. I, I want to break this down a little bit because I think it's going to help us look at the importance of this. Instead of seeing it as just part of our Christian duty, we, we want to look at this as a joy-filled experience that we get to walk in and a symbol to a watching world. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. It starts off by Paul asking a question. He says, what shall we say then? Now, again, if we're reading scripture and we get to a statement like that, we shouldn't just accept that as reality. It's like my wife in the car with me whenever I start a sentence with, so anyway, that's what I was thinking, and I just keep going. Because I started, I started out loud with her what has already been four paragraphs deep in my own mind. And she should know that by now. She should know exactly what I'm thinking, right? And she's like, wait, time out. What are we talking about? What are we talking about here? When you said that's what I was thinking, what were you thinking? Help me understand that. And then I have to, yeah, you're right. I have to backtrack. And Oh, yeah, I was actually thinking about this. Okay, now we're on the same page. Proceed, right? So when we see a question like this that Paul writes, or a word like therefore, or anything along those lines, it should trigger our minds to be like, what is being talked about? Well, in this instance, remember that we have chapters and verses. We have chapters and verses, so what we do is we have all these pause and breaks within the continuity of a letter that's being written, a very comprehensive, long letter that's being written. So Paul doesn't have a break. Paul's not like, hence I finished chapter 5. Let me go to chapter 6 in my letter to the Church of Rome. No, it's just a letter. He is just writing. People much smarter than me are the ones that studied this and thought this, this would be helpful for people to study and know God's Word to be able to break it up in little pieces so that there's continuity to thought here. But for us to understand why he's starting 6 this way, we need to look at chapter 5. Chapter 5 is all about how we have peace with God because we can have faith in God. Faith in and of itself is a gift that, that in Adam, in our flesh, we are just dead. That's what we're headed towards. But what we get in Christ through grace 
is life. We have faith in a living God that sent His only Son to die a perfect, live a perfect life and die a death on the cross, taking the punishment that we all deserved, and that is all grace. And you get all that get big good news dropped on your lap, and Paul asks the question, so, so now what? What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin? That grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, we could stop here and just use that as our apologetic defense of baptism, but that's not really the tone we want to go with. We want to say, Jesus did it, he commanded it, that's why we do it. But Paul had that same posture, he still had to explain things to the church. He still had to break down bad theology and replace it with correct theology. He still had to break down bad practice of the church and then replace it with good theology and good understanding of who Christ is and what this means. Paul writes this, it seems as though Paul's writing this with the assumption that, under the assumption that the early church did exactly what Jesus instructed them to do. Paul is writing this under the assumption, at least from my vantage point, that baptisms are happening in the church all the time because he's actually taking some time to explain why we do baptism in the first place. He's using this as an example. Should we just continue to sin just so that grace can abound? We just get this unending supply of God's grace, therefore I can sin as often as I want to? And Paul says, that's crazy talk. No. If if you have been put to death to sin, how can you still live in it? That's his question. If sin has been completely eradicated through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how can you say that you are a follower of Jesus and still continually choose to live in sin? Paul says that's crazy talk. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Down in the water, you go down into the water, and that is a symbol of being buried. You are put to death. The old self is going down into the water. The new self, the new self is coming up out of the water. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We, too, might walk in newness of life. We have been made new. Now, we don't necessarily have to go through the rest of it, but I think this makes perfect sense for us too, because he starts again in verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. All of that symbolized in baptism. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. 
Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. All symbolized in baptism. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. Coming up out of the water, the voice of God, it figuratively just saying, symbolically saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The same words Jesus heard from God, God is speaking over you in salvation. You belong to me. You are my son. You are my treasured son. You are the rightful heir to the family fortune known as the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that when we go out into a watching world, we are to take salvation with us. We are to take good news with us. We are to, as we see that good news make its way out into people's lives, we baptize them. We let them enjoy and live in the joy of the symbol of being taken down into the, de- into the grave and back up into newness of life. And then we teach them all the things that Christ taught us, how to obey them, how to walk in them. But according to Christ... Once understanding the salvation work of Jesus on the cross is made its way into our minds and our hearts, and we realize that we are walking and living in sin and we are in desperate need of redemptive work of Jesus in our lives, the first thing that we're told to do is to baptize one another so that we get to live in that symbol. We get to, we get to enjoy that symbol together. And then we teach. And then we walk but we could tend to get that backwards in the church today, feeling like you're not allowed to get baptized until you know what you need to know. So you, can't, you have to come to our six-week class and then take an exam. And then once that's done, then, then you'll be a member of the church. And the symbol of membership of the church is that you get baptized. And it turns the attention away from our Father in heaven, saying that we are His treasured child, and turns it on us as an institution. And it's just wrong. And it's way outside of the order that God Himself ordained things to be. We put the spotlight on Jesus every time. And what baptism is supposed to do, even though the person is there in front of their peers and their friends and their families, even though that's happening and they are in front, the spotlight still is shown on Jesus because baptism is all about Jesus. It's about reminding us what Jesus did and then bringing us into newness of life. Verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. 
If you're not under law and you are under grace, you get to live out of that newness of life. And a symbol like baptism, those moments help us recalibrate our minds of who we belong to, of a decision we've made and a person that we are now. We are out of the death of sin, out from under it, out from under the oppression of it, and we are now walking in newness of life. Therefore, I do not need to give over to my sinful passions because I am no longer that person. That person is dead. And I do not want to resurrect that person. That sinful person got put to death, and I was able to say that, broadcast that to a watching world by being baptized. This whole passage, to me, is riddled with symbolism behind Paul's saying, like, under the assumption, like, the church, we should be baptizing each other. That's what Jesus said to do. And then it's just this constant. Every time someone in the body gets baptized, it's another reminder to the church of what we're living in and not living in. That's why here, at least, when we do baptisms, they are a huge celebration. We want to have a picnic and a party, and we want to cheer. There are a couple things we need to take note of here. Baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing we want to take note of is that baptism is a personal testimony of how Jesus washed away our sin and gave us new life through His atoning work on the cross. The third thing is that baptism lines us up with or identifies us with Christ. The Romans passage reminds us of all of that. Now, I want to be gentle here because we're just trying to exegete Scripture here. We want to look at what this word means. Whenever we look at the New Testament church and we see baptism happen, there are certain things that we know to be true. And what this means is that being baptized as an infant or when you were too young to understand what baptism means, all three of those points were missed. If baptism is a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and baptism is a personal testimony of how Jesus washed away your sin and gave you new life through His atoning work on the cross, and baptism lines you and I up with a, and identifies us with Christ, then the Romans passage reminds us of all of that, then that means that being baptized as an infant or when you were too young to understand what baptism means, all three of those points were missed because someone made that decision for you. Baptism in Scripture always comes after someone has testimony of surrendering their life to Jesus. Every time in Scripture baptism happens, it happens after someone has testimony of surrendering their life to Jesus. The New Testament shows us that first one receives Christ and then gets baptized. So one commentary I read actually said, if you were not aware of submitting to the Lordship of Jesus, then it is impossible to think that your baptism is a personal commitment to Christ because someone made that decision for you. Now, I'm in a room full of people that treasure or understand or, or deeply were ingrained in a Catholic upbringing. So that could be very offensive. I'm not trying to be offensive and I'm trying to handle it delicately, but everywhere in scripture, and I can't find one example otherwise to this, that someone gets baptized that is always after 
they have a testimony of surrendering their life to Jesus. It is a cognitive decision made on the part of the redeemed one. So when Jesus is speaking to them, he's saying, go to all the world and make disciples and baptize them. Once you see disciples made, baptize them into the, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to obey all that I have commanded. And lo, I am with you always to the even end of the age. So Jesus did it. He told us to do it. So that leads me to two takeaways that could be, uh, could be maybe very elementary in their take. Here's my first takeaway. Be baptized. The questions we should ask ourselves is, have you made the conscious decision to be baptized? Are you in Christ? Is, is Christ your Lord? If, if those answers to those questions are yes, but you have not made the conscious and cognitive decision to be baptized, then I want to ask you a, another question. Why not? Why not? Jesus stepped into uh, uh, the, the waters of the Jordan and had his cousin baptize him in front of people that they would maybe de deem this Jesus as a stranger, or he a stranger to them, but nobody was a stranger to Jesus. He knew everyone and he knew their hearts. So have you made the conscious decision to be baptized? Are you in Christ? Is Christ your Lord? Now, I'm going to make a, a, a statement here. Pastors love to brag about numbers. That's just notoriously annoying uh, about people in my profession. Um, and so baptisms can fall into the category of just something we like to brag about. We like to brag about, yeah, we did 17 baptisms last year. Can you believe it for a church our size? Like that, that kind of like bravado garbage that happens and unfortunately happens far too often in pastoral conversations. So I want to make that very clear. I'm not making a plea so that I have some cool thing to put on our website or some, obviously you know how much we treasure social media in this church. So uh, I'm being very facetious about that. <laughs> We have almost no social media presence. Uh, um, real quick, I should probably cover it. It's not because we're anti-social media. It's because, like, I just don't, I don't do it. I, and, and if you want to do it, great, go for it. But uh, we're not, I'm not saying this as a desperate plea. I'm not saying this because I feel less than as a pastor if we schedule a baptism and no one comes forward. I'm not saying this because as leadership, we scratch our heads and be like, oh man, why haven't we, we, we haven't had enough baptisms. We only had two last year. Like, oh my goodness, what's happening? Like, no, it's, that's not what's driving it. What's driving me saying that is the more I dig into it, the more I think like, oh my word, like when my son tells me he wants to be baptized and he can express to me what that means, I want you to see it. I want you to be there for it. I, I want him to remember the day. I want him to recalibrate around it often. So if, if I could ask those questions again, have you made the conscious decision to be baptized? 
Are you in Christ? Is Christ your Lord and Savior? If the answer to have you been baptized is still no, I would want to know what's stopping you. Make that known to the masses. Allow yourself to live out of that freedom and that joy that Paul's talking about in Romans 6 that recalibrates us around the symbol of being our old self being put to death. How in the world would we ever think that we could live in newness of life and still be a slave to sin and still expect us to, the world to believe that Jesus is our Lord and our Savior and our Master? The symbol of baptism is a recalibration tool. It is a testimony to a watching world. Make that known to the masses, church. That is not something to hide. That's not something to be ashamed of. That's something to broadcast to a watching world who you belong to. The second takeaway is this. Live as though Christ is your Lord. Live like Christ is your Lord. You don't need to get baptized over and over and over again. You and I just need to rely on the redemptive work of Jesus. We don't need to continually say, oh man, I had a bad week. I really screwed up. Like Frank's not doing baptisms here every Thursday night. It's not a place where we have to go for confessional and be made new every week through the waters of baptism. It is a one-time symbol that we, we say to a watching world. Now, I have known people that said, like, I don't know if I really understood what I was doing when I got baptized then. I want to do it now because I know what it means. And that's fine. I mean, you want to get baptized a hundred times and you, you just you want to do that. I mean, that's a different conversation we should have. But... You do not need to go back. I remember when I was a kid, I felt like um, every time someone said, hey, if you want to be saved, if you want to ask Jesus into your heart, just raise your hand and repeat after me with this prayer. I think I asked Jesus into my heart about 6,000 times when I was a kid. And I just didn't understand. That's not a critique of the teachers that didn't teach me properly. It's just I didn't completely understand the redemptive work of Jesus as a one-time thing. Jesus only died on the cross once. He's that powerful. He only had to do it once. He only had to conquer sin and death once. Which means when I surrender my life over to the Lordship of Jesus, I only have to do that once. And then I live in newness of life. The symbol of baptism helps me stay reoriented around that. And every time the church celebrates another baptism, it reminds me of my own. It reminds me of, of my newness of life. If you are sitting here today and you've never been baptized, and you, you are living under the lordship of Jesus by your own definition, then I would say in the coming weeks, we should see you in the water. We should... Why would you rob your church body, your fellowship of brothers and sisters from being able to walk in that newness of life alongside you? Live as, as though Christ is your Lord. The redemptive work of Jesus happened once. We don't have to see him go back on that cross. He's not up there. He rose again. He filled us with his spirit so that we can live this life in newness of life. So be baptized and live like Christ is your Lord.
We're going to close with a song today called Living Waters. We've sung it before. One of the stanzas in the song says, Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Love, forgiveness, vast and boundless. Christ, he is our living water. The living water. Would you join me as we pray? Would you stand? We're going to pray together and then we're going to sing. What a joy, Father, to think back in my mind of the people, even as I see faces in this room of people we've been able to uh, walk alongside in their baptism and celebrate that alongside them and uh, cool memories of the church being the church. So, Lord, we want to be a healthy church. We want to be a church that longs and desires to reflect you out into a watching world. So as you continually make yourself known, Lord, if there are people here who have yet to make that decision to know you, to walk in newness of life, I pray that you would give them the courage and the strength to talk to you, to communicate that with you, to to say that they do believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who, who redeemed them from the mess of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. And then out of that symbol of new life of baptism, Lord, we will figure it out. We will do it together. We will walk this road together. Lord, may you make disciples and give us the joy of, uh, by your infinite grace, allowing us to be a part of it. So God, as we, as we try to orient ourselves around more and more what a healthy church looks like, may we be a church that celebrates baptisms often because we see you making disciples through what's happening at Journey Church. May we come and drink the living waters.